Welcome to the podcast, Buffy and the Art of Stories, Season 3. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you love creating stories, or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. This Monday, we're talking about Helpless, Season 3, Episode 12. The original title of that was 18 because it takes place on Buffy's 18th birthday. Buffy faces a serial killer vampire without her slayer strength. In particular, I'll cover how details are woven in early that viewers might not notice but that make later plot developments work, but the dangers of sacrificing character in service of a plot the use of metaphors, pacing, and the demands of and timing of the writing process for television because we have great commentary from the DVDs by writer David Fury. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. The original air date was January 19, 1999. Helpless was directed by James A. Contner and written by David Fury. We start, as we should, with opening conflict. This is conflict to draw the viewer in, and sometimes it relates to the main conflict of the story, and sometimes it is separate. Here it is separate but quickly segues into our theme for the episode. Buffy and Angel are at Angel's place in front of the fire. They are training by fighting each other. It ends with her on top of him about to stake him with a baguette. And she says, satisfied? Angel's not sure that is quite the word. She steps away and uh, says, no, it's not, since they can't have satisfaction in the personal sense. He asks if he'll see her this weekend, which is her birthday weekend. She teases him a bit by telling him she sort of has a date and jokes about it being with an older man, who turns out to be her father. He's taking her to the ice show, and she says it should be big fun, and she can use some of that these days. David Fury, in the commentary, mentioned that the idea for the first scene that he had was that they would be having this indoor picnic. And his whole point of doing that was so that she could uh, play stake him with that piece of French bread. We cut from Buffy talking about her father to Buffy and Giles. We're at one minute, 34 seconds in, and Giles is training her on crystals. He holds up each one, asks what it's for. Buffy is joking around and a bit restless, and he asks for her glib-free attention. She claims that without Faith, who is on an unscheduled walkabout, she feels she should be out there patrolling. Giles says, well, Faith isn't interested in training, and Buffy says, I hate being the good one. This exchange seems like a throwaway just to explain Faith's absence from the episode and to have some humor there. But as I'll talk about in spoilers, it is seeding something important for later episodes. Giles, for now, tells her to concentrate. 
and she looks at this very large crystal. We cut to Buffy fighting a vampire in a park. She's doing great. She's quipping. And then suddenly she loses focus. She's dizzy. The vampire overpowers her. He is on top of her with a stake to her chest, and we go to credits. So great hook there and a situation we don't see Buffy in very often when she truly seems vulnerable. We come back and get right to the story spark or inciting incident that usually comes about 10% through a story or episode and it gets our main plot rolling. So here we're at four minutes, four seconds in and Buffy headbutts this vampire, knocks him off of her, but it is a struggle for her and she crawls away, gets the stake while she's still on the ground and he leaps on top of her, but she's on her back and she is holding up the stake with the pointy end up and he more or less falls on it and dusts. This moment where it is so hard for Buffy to do something that is normally pretty simple for her, uh, this is not an uber powerful vampire, is what sets our plot in motion. The next day at the library, it becomes more explicit. We're at four minutes, 36 seconds in. And I mention this because the episodes are typically 42 to 44 minutes long. So we are all right around 10% here. Buffy is throwing knives at a target and missing repeatedly. She tells Giles about almost letting the vampire stake her and says, I'm way off my game. My game's left the country. He says maybe she has a bad flu, and Buffy says, no, no, she can't get sick. Her dad is coming into town to take her to the ice show, and if she cancels, it'll break his heart. Giles tries to reassure her, tells her, forego training for 48 hours or so. She insists she needs more training, but her next throw breaks something glass off screen, and she says she'll go, and Giles says, thank you. Outside at a picnic table, Xander teases Buffy about going to the ice show. Willow thinks it's sweet that Buffy and her dad have this tradition, especially now that he's not around so much. So this is a nice use of a little conflict between Buffy and her friends on a minor level to get out this exposition that Buffy's dad doesn't come around much. And it also adds on to that theme of father-daughter relationships. Xander says he thinks they should do a birthday party for Buffy, but Buffy reminds him that parties in her honor tend to go bad. Willow, though, says 18 is a big one, and this too is a little bit more exposition through conflict because it lets us know this is Buffy's 18th birthday. At about seven minutes in, she comes home and is excited to see flowers and balloons for her birthday, but it is not a present. Joyce explains to her that her dad's quarterly projections are unraveling and he can't get away right now. She offers to take off work and take Buffy herself, but Buffy says no. She was just thinking of a quiet birthday and she walks away leaving the flowers and balloons there. And this is so very sad. It would have been sad regardless, but we saw earlier both Buffy's excitement, how much she needed something fun right now, what this tradition meant to her, and we had that line where she said it would break her dad's heart if she canceled. 
And instead, Buffy's heart is being broken, and it seems that this didn't mean that much to her father, especially because he isn't even calling Buffy himself. He sent Buffy a letter with the flowers and balloons, but we don't see any sort of birthday call or heartfelt apology. So that is the first example of something early in the episode that made this part have much more impact. Now we switch scenes to a dark mansion. There is a fire burning in a fireplace. There's candlelight and someone is bricking up a wall. A man we'll find out is Quentin Daniels supervises and he asks the other men how much longer it will be. Says once it's done, the Slayer's preparation is nearly complete. So we don't know who these people are right now. And the preparation raises questions to keep us engaged in the story. Now we cut to the library. Buffy is telling Giles that the ice show is not just cartoon characters. There's ballet, sophisticated people go. They might take their daughters or students or slayers. Giles, though, is not getting the hint. He's arranging all these crystals. He puts out a large grounding crystal and tells Buffy to look at the flaw at the center. Buffy is disappointed, but she concentrates on the flaw. So this is minor, but it's the first instance where now Giles lets her down. After her father did, she has tried to get Giles to step into that place, and he doesn't. The story then immediately escalates that because Buffy, absorbed in the crystal, doesn't respond when Giles says her name. He then takes out a case with needles in it and injects Buffy with something. Later, she comes to, unaware of what happened, and leaves. The first time through, I, like probably everyone was now worried that Giles was actually evil. And this is a great hook we get before cutting to a commercial. When we come back, Willow and Buffy are walking outside school, and Buffy asks how Amy is, and Willow says she got her a bell, but no luck changing her back from a rat. So this is a nice callback to the previous episode, Gingerbread. And it keeps Amy alive for viewers. And David Fury commented on it, saying that they do this from time to time throughout the show, have these mentions, these reminders about characters that they may want to do something with in the future so that it keeps it alive for the viewers. Buffy sees some guy hassling Cordelia. He's angry that she flirted with him and now she isn't interested. So we are getting to the one quarter twist. Usually comes about 25% through an episode, sometimes as late as a third. And it's from outside the protagonist and spins our story in a new direction and raises the stakes. So at 11 minutes, 30 seconds in, right about a quarter way through, Buffy tries to intervene when the guy gets physical with Cordelia, but he just knocks her away and she flies several feet back into a bench. Cordelia then fights him off. This truly turns our story because it's one thing for Buffy to feel a little weak and have a dizzy moment, but here she has no Slayer strength at all, and this is now sometime later, so it wasn't a momentary thing, and she isn't appearing to be sick. So now she and her friends will focus on what is wrong with her. 
First, she goes to Giles in the hall. She is very worried, and he seems way too calm. She's worried not just about lack of strength, but lack of coordination. Giles assures her they'll get to the bottom of it. He gives her his word. And we cut to Quentin and Giles talking alone, and Quentin says, you're having doubts and goes on to point out to Giles that it's been done this way for dozens of centuries. It's a time-honored rite of passage, but it's not easy for the watcher or the slayer. Giles says it's cruelty to lock her in this tomb, weakened and defenseless, and to unleash that on her. So I forgot to say they are in the mansion and Giles is referring to whatever is behind that bricked up wall. Quentin argues that the Slayer needs more than strength. She must use her wits, imagination, and confidence, which comes from self-reliance, and that's what the test is for. Giles argues that if anyone on the council had actual contact with a Slayer, they would see how awful this is, and Quentin says this is exactly why Giles isn't qualified to make these decisions. He is too close to it. And this raises uh, I almost want to call it a sub-theme because we don't explore it that much, but it runs through the story, which is, is it better in this circumstance of Watcher and Slayer? Is objectivity more important than having that close relationship? Does having that close relationship undermine or make things better? Quentin asserts that the Slayer will be stronger for this when it's over, but Giles points out, or she'll be dead for it. After he leaves, we hear shouting and screaming from the box. When Quentin's helpers open it, there is a large vampire inside. He's in a straitjacket, his head is in a vise, and he's screaming in pain, and they use this long spoon to feed him pills and stay at a safe distance. And they also give him water that way using another long tool. This seems to help his pain. And David Fury said the pills were Joss Whedon's idea that this vampire needed these pills for headaches and they put this in early and then it leads to how Buffy kills him. This vampire, his, we found out his name is Kralik, is what I don't love about this story. The early scenes with him feel slow to me, and I'm not that interested in him as a villain. I get why we need to see this thing with the pills, but otherwise, I felt like I did not need to spend this much time with him. Back at the library, about 15 minutes in, Xander, Willow, and Oz are helping Buffy research. They're looking for a curse on slayers, and they get into an argument about kryptonite colors because Xander says maybe what they're looking for is kryptonite, and he and Oz go back and forth on what the red kryptonite does and the green kryptonite, and Buffy interrupts and says, guys, reality? And I love that, given that we're in a fantasy show. David Fury commented that he could never keep straight what the different colors of kryptonite did. And so instead, he had Oz and Xander argue about it. That way, he didn't have to be sure to be perfectly accurate. And I love that. It is important to do the research if you have something in your story uh, that requires it, maybe something historical, something sci-fi, and you're trying to have a real science basis. At the same time, you can go down 
down that rabbit hole and get stuck there and it may not really serve your story. So I have done this at times where my characters wouldn't necessarily know everything. So I have them perhaps argue about what is the right information here or give their own spin on it. And that's a good way to do that. It also introduces the information through some conflict, which is better than just throwing a bunch of info at your audience. Although here, the audience doesn't really need the kryptonite information. Um, it's just, it is a nice moment of comic relief coming through conflict and a great way to deal with that issue of not spending forever on research. Buffy walks away frustrated. Willow follows and says she knows Buffy will get her powers back, but what if she doesn't? Buffy claims that she'll deal with it. She will be okay. And Willow starts to say that this could open so many doors for her, but she only gets as far as so many because Giles walks by and Buffy interrupts to ask if he found anything. This is really subtle, but it emphasizes how far Buffy has come. She is no longer rejecting the call to be a slayer. Yes, she keeps trying to have a normal life as well, but she doesn't really want to go back to being an ordinary person. She wants to be able to fight, as she'll say in a little bit when talking to Angel. We're back at the mansion again. One of the two guys is exhausted. He sits down on a cot and tells the other guy it's his shift. That one reluctantly gets up and goes out to give the vampire the pills. David Fury said he meant this to play like two weary parents, kind of a whose turn is it to get up and feed the baby, and he thought it would be funnier. But the way it ended up being played and filmed was scary. I could have used some humor. Part of why the Kralik scenes don't work that well for me is he is not engaging to me as a villain. With Drusilla and Spike, we had some humor. We saw their vulnerability. We got to know them. Even the master, who wasn't a terribly developed character, had a clear goal that we could empathize with to some extent. He was trapped and he wanted to get out. And he used humor. He had a personality. Kralik, sure, he's he's trapped in this straitjacket. He's behind the wall. But we don't get any feel for a personality for him, at least not this early. And I don't know anything about these guys either. Kralik fools the one who goes out there, his name is Blair, into coming closer. And unbeknownst to Blair, Kralik has gotten his arms loose in the straitjacket. He manages to grab Blair by the neck. We cut to a fire burning at Angel's. He and Buffy are sitting in front of it, and he has given her a book of poetry with the inscription always in it. She claims she likes it. And he asks, if that's so, why did she seem more excited last year when she got a severed arm in a box? And she tells him it turns out her calling might be a wrong number. He reassures her that she's lived without being the Slayer before, but Buffy worries what if she can't? She's seen too much. She knows what goes bump in the night. And what if she hides under her bed scared and helpless? Angel tells her she could never be helpless or boring even if she tried. She is not so sure and tells him before she was the slayer. She doesn't want to say she was shallow, but she resembled a certain person that she'll call Spordelia. And Buffy says, what do I do? 
What do I have to offer? Why would you like me? That's when he tells her that he did see her before she became a slayer. And he talks about that flashback we saw in Becoming, how he watched her when she was called. And he tells her he loved her from that moment because she held her heart out before her for all the world to see. And he worried it'd be bruised or torn and wanted to keep it safe and warm it with his own. He's holding Buffy. She rests her head against his chest and says, that's beautiful. And then, or if taken literally, incredibly gross. And he says he was just thinking that. I really enjoyed that line. Um, David Fury said that was a Joss Whedon thing and that it works so well because if you can nail emotional truth and then undercut it with humor, it's amazing. And that Joss Whedon and Marty Noxon were so good at that. We are now getting to the midpoint of the episode, about 21 minutes in. This is where we typically see the protagonist commit to the quest in full or suffer a major reversal. So here we have a reversal. If you are finding the story structure I talk about here helpful, you may want to download the free story structure worksheets. You can find those at the link in the show notes or on writingasasecondcareer.com. Look for the menu item, Help With Your Story. You can also look for my book, Super Simple Story Structure, A Quick Guide to Plotting and Writing Your Novel. It is available in workbook, ebook, or audiobook editions. Or if you are a $5 patron, you can get a copy of Super Simple Story Structure in PDF for free. Patrons also get access to bonus episodes and content. Recently, I recorded a comparison between Willow's character arc with Magic and Jonathan's for the series. If you would like to get access to that or simply support the show, you can do that on Patreon. Use the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com L. Lily. So that's double L I double L Y. We switch back to Kralik. And by the way, David Fury said he chose the name Zachary Kralik for his four year old nephew. He thought it made a great demon name that a lot of demon names on the show have G's or K's in them. But I wonder how his nephew may feel now so many years later about having this vampire named after him. Blair wakes up and now he's a vampire. Kralik comments that he was afraid he drained him too much and says, I do that sometimes. The new vampire gets Kralik out of the vise and Kralik says that this is a game and we're not gonna play by their rules, but it doesn't mean we're not going to play. So this explains why Kralik then goes and finds Buffy. And then he tells Blair to call his friend in and they'll discuss it over dinner. So there is a little humor here, but again, I it just feels kind of flat to me. I'm not sure I need this scene at all because we're going to see a more direct reversal for Buffy in a couple minutes. And I, I think these Kralik scenes are part of why the pace of this episode feels slow to me. At 22 and a half minutes in, Giles enters the mansion 
and he sees that open wall space where Kralik was. He sees a blood trail and he looks into the room where the um, other guy was slaughtered and we don't see it but it is bad enough to make Giles nearly vomit as he staggers out of the mansion. So this is a different feel than we usually get in Buffy. It's much more classic horror. The dark mansion, the candlelight and firelight, the British guy who is trying to find out the truth and hunting the vampires. We're now at 24 minutes, 15 seconds in, and here is where we get that direct reversal for Buffy. Direct in the sense that she is aware of it. Kralik getting free, she didn't know about that. She doesn't even know who he is. But now she is walking home alone, and these jerk guys start taunting her, asking for a lap dance, and she muses to herself about the foolishness of telling Angel she would be fine when he offered to walk her home. So this is one of those departures from the character in service of the plot that doesn't work for me because yeah okay maybe Buffy would say she was fine to walk home because she is still in a bit of denial perhaps about what's happening although I'm not sure that's supported by the text but it is almost impossible for me to believe that Angel didn't follow her insist on coming and then even if she said no follow from a distance and lurk because we know that he does that yet here when she's saying she doesn't have her slayer powers she leaves and he doesn't even try to follow or at least uh, walk out at some point behind her and make sure she got home safely this is a great example of having something happen having characters act out of character just to get your story where you need it to go can really rob it of some of its power and it's distracting to the viewer or reader because you're thinking this just doesn't feel right. Buffy turns and Kralik is there blocking her path. He's in vamp face. She does break away from him. He has grabbed her coat. It's a red coat, bright red, and David Fury said he had a little Red Riding Hood subtext in the episode, in the script, but he didn't know the costume department was going to put her in a red coat, and he really loved that. Buffy runs yelling for help. She tries to climb a fence to get away. The other vampire now is there and pulls her down. She scrambles under the fence, kicks him, runs waving her arms, and she goes into the street and Giles pulls up. Another car goes by, but Giles pulls up shouting to her, uh, opens the door, she gets in. The vampire tries to grab her as they drive away, but they manage to shake him. Kralik is left standing there with her coat. Though we don't normally see Buffy in this situation, I did think she was acting in character here. She's very limited in what she can do, and she does as much as she possibly can. She runs, she yells as loud as she can to draw attention in a hope for help. Uh, when she can't climb over the fence, she goes under it. So Buffy does all that she possibly can. She is just limited in what she can do. At 26 minutes in, we're back in the library. Buffy tells Giles her arm felt like it was broken when she hit that vampire. And she says she can't be just a person, can't be helpless. She's so distraught. And Giles shows her that kit with the needles. 
He tells her it's an organic compound of muscle relaxants and adrenal suppressants. She'll be herself in a few days. It's a temporary effect, and she says, you... And he says, it's a test, Buffy. It's given to the Slayer once she, if she reaches her 18th birthday. The Slayer is disabled and then entrapped with a vampire foe whom she must defeat in order to pass the test. He tells her the vampire Kralik has escaped, that as a mortal he murdered and tortured over a dozen women before committed to an asylum for the criminally insane. This to maybe some of the pacing issue here because Giles, yeah, he fills in that detail about the criminally insane part. The rest of it, we mostly already know. And I really do want him to have this conversation with Buffy. I love this scene. So I don't know what you would do about that except perhaps take out the earlier scene with Quentin when he and Giles have that conversation or at least maybe shorten that conversation. Buffy, as Giles is finishing, throws that kit at him. She cannot believe he has done this and says all this time he saw her suffering and he didn't say a word and he tells her he wanted to and she says, liar. He explains he has to answer to the council that its directions were very simple, administer the drug, direct her to the mansion, and say nothing. Buffy says, who are you? How could you do this to me? And tells him not to touch her when he moves close to her. David Fury said this was his favorite scene, and he sees it partly as a metaphor to when, as a child, you realize that your parents have to answer to other people, that they have a boss or an employer. He also commented that part of the scene got cut. He was going to have Giles explain the mesmerizing crystal, that large crystal we saw, but that it was cut, I think he said, in editing. And really, he commented, you don't really need it because we already get that, that self-explanatory. And I think that is a hard line to walk. You need to explain enough that the story works for the audience, but not so much that you're slowing this down. And interestingly, he commented on the pacing here and said it's been mentioned, he didn't say who said it, that the pace could be faster, but that he likes it this way. And I do agree, as I said, with that in terms of this particular scene between Buffy and Giles. I think if there are pacing issues, it comes from other things, from the Quentin scenes, from the scenes at the mansion. Giles tells Buffy the test is invalidated now that he's told her about it and that he'll do whatever he can to win back her trust. Cordelia walks in. She needs to research a paper on Bosnia, but seeing their faces, she's worried the world is ending again, and if it is, she won't bother. Giles tells Buffy she can't walk home alone. It's not safe. And Buffy says, I don't know you. Cordelia says, did something take her memory? He's Giles. Giles. He hangs out here a lot. No one explains to Cordelia but she says, of course, she'll drive Buffy home. And then adds, but if the world doesn't end, I'm going to need a note. So this is more growth for Cordelia becoming part of the group again. And I really like that. Something else David Fury said about this scene and the episode generally is that fans 
tend to not like it when our core characters are at odds with each other. They want the Scooby gang as happy campers fighting evil, but that the show couldn't just stay that way. And that struck me because I do like those kinds of stories, which might explain why, though, season one doesn't quite have the same depth as we see in other seasons. I still really love it because that is the season where we probably get the most of that, our friends all being together, all fighting together. This worked for me because I felt like the Giles and Buffy bond was still forming and Giles was in this position of his whole life as an adult has been being a watcher. He is about following rules. He was the one always trying to tell Buffy she needs to follow the rules. She needs to do the training. So I believe that initially he would try to do what he was supposed to do to follow that tradition. And I love that he has so much growth in this episode to where it is more important to him, his relationship with Buffy. And also he can see that the council may just plain be wrong. We're 29 and a half minutes into the episode and we are coming to the three-quarter turn, which is typically grows out of the midpoint, but takes our plot in yet another new direction. Joyce is at home. She hears someone outside, goes onto the porch, and sees Buffy's coat on the floor. Someone is in it. She thinks it's Buffy and approaches, but Kralik rolls over and reveals himself and says, Mother. At 30 minutes in, Buffy comes into the kitchen. She sweeps the flowers and the balloon into the trash. Such a telling action about how she feels about both her father figures, her deep disappointment and anger. But then she finds a photo of her mother, a Polaroid, with the word come written on the back. So this is what turns our story, takes it in that new direction. It came out of the reversal when Kralik became free and confronted her and it is spinning it because now it's not about Buffy in jeopardy alone it is about her mother she goes upstairs she takes out her bag and loads all these supplies into it including a bottle of holy water and David Fury commented on that they had to show the holy water which she'll use later to seed it for the audience so they wouldn't be surprised and you've planted the seed there and it didn't feel quite right to him because he saw Buffy as she would take her biggest stakes so I actually saw it differently. To me, the holy water makes complete sense because Buffy is weakened. She maybe is not going to have the strength to use those stakes. So she takes a weapon she can use that doesn't take a lot of strength to use. I thought that showed her cleverness and resourcefulness. And it's a great example of how you may put something in as a writer that you don't necessarily think is working or you don't grasp the implications that your reader may see and fill in for you. Or maybe you're unconsciously doing it. But I I was fascinated that he didn't think the holy water really worked there. We switch to Kralik. He is taking Polaroids of Joyce. He talks about his mother and the terrible things she did to him. And he says, but she's dead to me now. Most because I killed and ate her. 
but also because I know I won't be alone much longer. And he tells Joyce he's not going to kill Buffy. He'll make Buffy like him. And Joyce's face will be the first thing she eats. And then he says, I have a problem with mothers. I'm aware of it. I do like that last line, which is kind of funny. But most of this is not that engaging to me. For one thing, uh, and David Fury commented on it, it's a little cliche, this idea of serial killers with problem with their mothers. Also, that your face will be the first thing she eats. I, I think I have this visceral reaction to it. And I just don't want that image of Buffy. And I don't think that we get another image of that in the show. And maybe it is meant to horrify us. But it, I, I just like don't want that image there. If, if any of you have thoughts about that, I, I would love to hear how that hit you. About 32 minutes in, Buffy comes into the mansion. And this is another major character issue for me. There is just no way I believe that Buffy would not try to get Angel to help her to come in with her or even Giles. I mean, Buffy's mother's life is in danger. Buffy knows she is weakened. And to me, there's no way, no matter how angry she was at Giles, that she wouldn't go and get his help. He is, if somehow Angel's not there, he is the next strongest person. I get that the test has to be Buffy alone, but I needed something to tell us why they aren't there. Maybe if the other vampire, maybe if they had been two turned into vampires and we saw just a very quick scene of them somehow engaging Angel. Something that would explain why Buffy goes in there by herself. Today we have some comments from a patron. Steve commented on amends and said it is his favorite Buffy episode so far. He loved this one because he loves Christmas episodes on any show. But also what I didn't love, that ending that uh, this force comes in sort of out of nowhere and fixes things um, he thought was wonderful and it fit with the holiday theme for him plus the kind of ending he likes which is where everything comes out right and we're happy for the characters he also had some issues with this episode helpless that he sent me in advance saying that he didn't like it because he didn't believe that Giles would betray Buffy. He thinks that Giles would have told the council to take a hike right up front. And also, he said it didn't make sense to him that Buffy didn't bring Angel with her to face Kralik in the house. And I agree with that. That also did not work for me. If you have comments about the show, email me lisa at lisalily.com or uh, send me a note on Patreon if you are a patron or tweet me at Lisa M. Lily, hashtag Buffy story. David Fury said he initially pitched this premise 
of Buffy being put to this test unbeknownst to her and the council drugging her. But his original story was that the drugs caused Buffy to hallucinate and she thinks it's real and her mom and her friends have all been turned into vampires. And it had to be changed because of the other episodes, including The Wish, where we had just seen Vampire Willow and Vampire Xander. His basic premise was kept, but the nature of the test changed. And I wonder if this is a vestige of that, that in his original premise, these people, nobody could help. I don't know if Giles was a vampire too, but no one could help because they were all against Buffy and maybe no one, as they were revamping it, no one thought, hey, wait a minute, why doesn't Buffy call these people? We switch to Giles. Quentin comes to see him and... Giles tells him that Kralik is loose and has killed one of the men. But Quentin says it changes nothing. And also, it doesn't matter that Giles told Buffy the Slayer entered the field of play. Giles can't imagine why she would do that. And he leaves to help her. Quentin tries to stop him and says something like, you have no business interfering. And Giles says, this is not business. So a little more of that sort of sub-theme about is it better to be objective, to keep personal feelings separate or not. Buffy in the mansion has her crossbow. She does everything she can to fight off the other vampire who is there too, the one that Craig turned. And she manages to tip a bookcase onto him. And once he's down, she beats him with a shovel. Kralik is playing cat and mouse with her. Um, He grabs her and uh, she tries to use her cross against him, but he laughs and just presses it against his stomach and seems to get a sort of perverse pleasure out of the burning. She runs. She is searching everywhere for a weapon, opening drawers. She finds a room with photos of Joyce pinned all over it. This really would have told us, I think, all we needed to know about Kralik's interaction with Joyce. She's clearly frightened and he's taken what looks like hundreds of photos in that time. So finally in the hallway, Kralik blocks her. He tries to bite her and then he gets this terrible head pain. So unlike in amends where we had that force that stops the sun from rising and kind of comes from out of nowhere and solves everything, at least for the moment, here Yes, this this does sort of come in, but we did see it earlier. We saw that Kralik pretty often needed this medication. Also, this doesn't fix everything for Buffy. Uh, It's not like it's going to disable him permanently. He's taking out his pills. She uses her quick-wittedness to grab the medication from him because now he's a bit weakened. And she grabs it and she runs and she dives down this laundry chute. So I love that part. I love that we see Buffy's resourcefulness. The laundry chute takes her right into the room with Joyce, but that also doesn't fix everything because Buffy doesn't even have the coordination to get her mother untied. So we are now going to the climax. This is where our opposing forces have their final clash and resolve the conflict. We're at 38 minutes, 46 seconds in. We cut to Kralik running down the stairs. 
some amount of time has passed, though that's not entirely clear on first watch. He's shouting for his pills. Buffy runs toward him as if she's trying to get past him, and she has the pills in her hand. He grabs her. He takes the pills. There is a glass of water helpfully sitting there. And she watches as he takes the pills and drinks the water. And he starts into this evil monologue, but then stops in pain and says, my pills. And she holds up her holy water. So she has filled that glass with holy water. I'm okay with us not seeing that. I would have liked to have a little better sense that there was some time passing before Kralik ran down those stairs. So we would know that Buffy might have been able to do something. David Fury said that some people, some fans were disappointed because they didn't think holy water could do much to vampires. But he thought it worked because it's from inside. And I agree with that. I love the ingenuity of that and the idea that, sure, if you splash it on them, maybe it'll just be like Kralik with that cross. But from inside, it's burning them up from inside. So I like that part. We're now in our falling action where we tie up loose ends and resolve subplots. So Kralik is gone. Buffy's struggling to untie Joyce, but the other vampire bursts in. So he has gotten out from under that bookcase. He bursts in, lunges for them, but Giles is right behind and he dusts the vampire. And there is this moment where he and Buffy just look at each other. You could also see this as part of the climax rather than falling action. If you see the Buffy-Giles relationship or the betrayal, Giles' betrayal as the main plot. But either way, it does resolve that story. And as we're seeing Buffy's face, she is bruised, she has cuts, she still looks pretty devastated. Quentin says, congratulations. And we are in the library. She's sitting at the table. He is telling her that the council is very pleased. Buffy, of course, is angry and says, you set that monster after my mother. And he says, you think the test was unfair. Buffy responds, I think you better leave town before I get my strength back. I love this exchange because it is such a different view. Quentin so misses the point. You think it was unfair. They truly were so reckless with this. And he tries to justify it by saying they're fighting a war, not in the business of fair. So we get that business again. And Giles points out Buffy's the one who's fighting the war, not the council. Quentin is not persuaded. Giles says something like, we're done here. But Quentin says, no, the test is for the Watcher too. And Buffy passed, but Giles failed and he's fired. Uh, Giles asks on what grounds. And Quentin says, your affection for your charge has rendered you incapable of clear and impartial judgment. You have a father's love for the child and that is useless to the cause. I think that use of child is not an accident. It emphasizes the father-daughter type of bond. And it also does what I talked about in the first season and second season, that there is no creepy, uncomfortable element to the Giles and Buffy relationship, despite that she is a young woman. 
and he's this mentor figure and we often see that kind of play out and turn into a romantic relationship it is very clear this is father daughter Buffy as a child it also emphasizes the brutality of what the council does and the recklessness of what it does Quentin tells Giles that he is to have no contact with the Slayer or that that would be best. Giles makes it clear that he's not going to pay attention to that. And Quentin says he figured that but warns him not to interfere with the new Watcher or you will be dealt with. He congratulates Buffy again. She says, bite me. He says, well, yes, colorful girl and leaves. She is bruised and cut and she winces in pain. Giles takes a washcloth and cleans her forehead. This is such a wonderful bonding moment as she looks at him. And David Fury said it was meant to be this subtle reconciliation to show they will get through this. And I I truly love this moment. And this is why, despite all the things I said about pacing and departing from character, I do still love this episode. In uh, the kitchen, Willow is so worried about Giles. She's like, he's fired. He's unemployed. He's between jobs. Buffy reassures her that Giles is not going anywhere. He's still a librarian. Xander offers to give the little lady a hand with opening a jar and takes it from Buffy, but then has to ask Willow for help in opening it. So that is it for the episode itself. I do have a few more things from the David Fury commentary. And this for me was one of the best commentaries because I love that he he really talked about what went into the writing process, the things I've already mentioned with the scenes. I know DVDs are old technology, but these interviews for me as a writer and and a fan, I so love listening to them. And I feel like I learn more every time that I do. So he said he was a freelance writer at the time. His previous script, he wrote with a partner. So this was his first one he wrote by himself. With his partner, he wrote Go Fish, which was very self-contained. And it makes me think this is something of a one-off as well, that maybe that was what they generally had the freelancers write. He was very excited because it included things that ended up affecting the whole series, even though it seemed like a one-off. His original script did include Giles getting fired, but he had it at the end of Act 2. So that would be roughly at the part that I think of as that three-quarter turn that spins the story again. And Fury said that Joss Whedon decided to make it a series arc, having Giles fired, so he moved it to the end of the episode. Fury commented on this that the whole idea of the story was this metaphor of the father figure betraying Buffy. And he wanted Quentin to be a sort of father figure or mentor to Giles and also explore that metaphor and almost a grandfather type relationship to Buffy. That might have answered our patron comment, Steve's, that he didn't buy that Giles would betray Buffy that way. If Quentin were in fact that mentor to Giles, it would add weight to Giles going along initially and make it that much harder for Giles. He has to choose between his father figure and his daughter figure. 
Jaw said that uh, he wasn't interested in that. The key here is the Giles-Buffy relationship. And Fury commented that if Quentin were a regular recurring character, maybe they could have explored it more. But ultimately, he agreed that it would be too much. Fury didn't comment on this, but it can't be accidental. Buffy's father, Hank Summers, gives as his reason for not doing the ice show that his quarterly projections are overdue, so work. And Giles, in the end, sacrifices his work, his life's work, for Buffy to make sure that Buffy and her mother are safe and to stand by her side. And I think that that just cannot be an accident. David Fury also commented that Anthony Stewart Head was really happy with this episode because too often Giles' only role is to deliver exposition or get knocked out, and he liked having so much to do here. Fury also commented that Go Fish, the first one he wrote with a partner, took him about eight days to write, and he said he had never written a script, a half-hour script, in less than two weeks before that, and Buffy is a full-length episode, 42 to 44 minutes. And he had nine to 10 days for this one. And that the season five turnaround time is about five days for a script. That often they barely get it in before the shooting days. And that it's not an ideal way to work, but they do it. So this tells me a lot about why there are sometimes these issues. It's easy for me to watch it 10 times over the years and say, oh, they're acting out of character. But if you're writing this script in such a short time, time, you can see why sometimes there are things where you think, well, why did they do it that way? Well, that's that's probably why. And I love that he gave this insight into how the process works. He said that the writers as a group work on the story. They figure out the act breaks. They come up with a beat sheet, and then Joss Whedon chimes in on that. And then whoever was assigned the script goes off and drafts an outline. And then Joss and David Greenwald, or later Marty Noxon, give notes on the outline. The writer goes off and writes the script. So I I think that's where that, you know, whatever it is, five days, nine days, eight days comes in. And he said, hopefully, there is time for a second pass through the script before Joss Whedon takes a last crack at it, cleans it up, puts it more into his voice if he thinks he needs it. And Fury said, if they're lucky, the actors get the scripts a few days before filming starts. Fury also commented that... He loved the through lines for the characters, how they often go to the end of the season and beyond. So those character stories that aren't the main plot and continue. And said for him, that's the beauty of the show, that it becomes one big unfolding novel, which is exactly what I loved when I started being able to watch it all the way through on the DVDs because a movie is much more comparable to a short story or a novelette or novella and it's only in these many episode arcs that I can see on screen and take apart what is comparable to the plot of a novel. So there is a little more in spoilers about the writing process and a few other things for the season. If you're not sticking around for that, thank you so much for listening. I hope you will come back next Monday for the Zeppo, a Xander-centric episode that is mainly from his point of view and where we see Faith again. 
And we are back for spoilers. When Fury commented on the fans not liking conflict between our core characters, he said they they explore a lot of those conflicts in season four. That is some of what I don't like in season four. Some of that conflict in our core group feels forced to me, but some does not. And we'll see if maybe I like it better watching it for the podcast. He also commented on how excited he was that Helpless influenced the series as a whole, Giles getting fired set Giles on this downward spiral that lasts through a season and a half. I am fascinated that it came out of this script he pitched that it sounds like was meant to be a one-off. And he saw it as this metaphor to what do you do when your child grows up and doesn't need you as much anymore. This also had the effect of bringing Wesley into the show. And then Wesley, of course, goes on to Angel, the series, and he becomes one of my favorite characters there. So again, how cool. Fury also sees that first scene where Buffy says, uh, you know, we're not having satisfaction in the personal sense as the beginning of the end for Buffy and Angel because it's when it really hits them that they can't ever consummate their relationship. And I, I think that that is accurate because up to now there's been so much drama and angst about Angel coming back and I feel like this is the first time we see them together kind of relaxed enjoying one another's company and then they are hit with these limits on the relationship. I also see this episode as a metaphor for the council's attitude towards slayers. They prefer the slayers as somewhat powerless, younger, girls who are less likely to challenge them. And this cruciamentum seems designed to get rid of the slayer and get another new one that's easier to control, despite them claiming that it's all about waging this war. And I think it very much drives the theme and action in season seven when Buffy ultimately shares her power with all the potential slayers and the council um, is blown up. Other spoilers I saw or foreshadowing Kralik's comment that he was afraid he drained the guy he turned into a vampire too much so that he would have just been dead and not a vampire. I saw that as a sort of hint for what happens between Angel and Buffy when she says, drink me, drain me, just don't take it all. And that danger that that could happen. A vampire could mean not to kill someone and do it anyway. Giles firing foreshadows season three uh, near the climax where Buffy quits the council. I have to think that seeing Giles get fired, but then seeing him continue to be her guide, continue to be in this fight, is part of what shows her that the council, how relevant is it really? And to realize she does not need the Watcher's council. And we'll see that echoed in season five when Quentin comes back and the Watcher's council once again tries to test Buffy And she is thrown off by it and then realizes that she has the power. We also get that one line, which we think is there as part of that, just to explain why Faith is gone and have a little humor, when she says, I hate being the good one, really sets up bad girls, where we do start out with that. Wesley comes, 
Faith refuses to even entertain the idea of listening to him. And Buffy is saying, no, you know, we have to do this. This is a job. And Faith says something like, I'll tell you what, you do the work and I'll copy yours. Buffy is the one towing the line, the one doing what she's supposed to do. And that she is becoming weary of that. And it also shows why there is that allure to faith's approach of we're the slayers the chosen two and we should be enjoying this so that is it for spoilers and this episode thank you again for listening and i hope you will come back next week i'm looking forward to this epo you can hear back episodes at lisalily.com music for this episode was composed and performed by robert newcastle buffy and the art of story is a production of spiny woman llc copyright 2020 all rights reserved